Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Art Williams. It is entitled, Valuing Your Election. Art. If you're part of the elect, you are just like President Obama. You cannot be re-elected. The desire of all the elect is to be with Christ at his return and to reign with him through the millennium. I want to review today and hopefully instill a sense of value for the truth of God and for your election. In Revelation 17, 14, it says they will come they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. And I'm in the ESV almost entirely today, by the way. I'm not sure if uh, Brian has KJV up or ESV, I don't know. Um, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The word chosen is Strong's number 1588, meaning select, by implication, favorite or elect. I hope it all it makes us all have a feeling of humility to be called God's favorites. When we keep in mind our shortcomings and the way we from time to time manifest these. I want to begin with looking at the preaching of the gospel and some of the associated risks that are involved the risks of false worship and teachings, the impact upon the church, and the significance of the truth. In Philippians 1, 15 through 18, Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Note, the person, the person proclaiming Christ does not have to be a disciple or even a believer or even conveying the truth. And while Paul rejoices in this proclaiming, he also gives a warning. A warning to those that know the truth, because there is a risk here that the elect will follow after pretense and not truth. Paul addresses that concern in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4. For the time is coming when the people will not endure sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And I want to restate that from the Weymouth New Testament. He uses a few different words here. For a time is coming when they will not tolerate wholesome instruction, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will find a multitude of teachers to satisfy their own fancies and will turn away from listening to the truth and turn aside onto fables. 
The phrases accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and find a, multiple, a multitude of teachers to satisfy their own fancies is significant. The largest churches in America are megachurches. And by their own admission, they become megachurches by employing market research. This allows them to tailor their messages to what the people want to hear. You see how that goes hand in glove with what Paul just said here? Accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Find a multitude of teachers to satisfy their own fancies. The message that market research concluded that people want to hear are messages that leave them feeling good. People have needs, mental, physical, emotional, physiological. So if those needs can be identified and market research can then present it in an acceptable way, it is a very effective tool for attracting people. And some of the people that go to these organizations, because they are large and they have uh, many, many uh, uh, support vehicles, colleges, and they can integrate the psychology with the scriptures. They can help people that are troubled, people that need someone to take them by the hand and mentor them. So they can help these people in that regard. But the question is, is this doing the work of God? Do these organizations have the sign that they are sanctified? And we'll look at Strong's number for the word sanctified a little later. Jesus issued warnings. Um, this first scripture, Matthew 24, 5, would probably not be heard in the megachurches. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and lead many astray. And you contrast this to what Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. Not big flock, not mega church, little flock. How are people led astray? Well, we get some insight into that in Matthew 15, 9. In vain do they worship me, here's the key, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Continuing in 2 Timothy 3 through 5, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And he gives us an instruction how to respond to that from such turn away. I didn't put this in my notes, but there's an instruction given by John. I think it's back in 1 John. He says, if anyone comes to your house and denies that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, don't even bid him good day. Continuing, in Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I tell you? You do not what I tell you. The truth of God is established by the teachings of Jesus Christ. Many of the scriptures that we have to go through are difficult to understand. Others are very, very easy to understand. And they're straight, straight from the shoulder. It doesn't take a lot of thinking about him. In Hebrews 12, 2, it says Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So it is imperative for the elect 
to identify truth versus fable, pretense versus sincerity. The letters to the seven churches indicate there will be failures to set in the, within the church to separate truth from fiction. In a short list of the criticisms, the first one is the loss of love. And it is, it is interesting because if you avoid losing your first love, the rest of them never happen. The rest of these that I'm going to list out here will never happen. The first criticism is loss of the first love and deceptive and oppressive doctrines, the doctrine of Balaam, being seduced and deceived by false teachers, committing fornication, literal or spiritual is not defined as, uh, as I can remember. But if it's spiritual fornication, then you're no longer part of the bride, you're part of the whore. And then it goes on to a dying church and a lukewarm church. I want to go into a little bit more on false worship. In Titus 1.16, they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him. There's two ways to deny Christ. You can deny Christ verbally, or you can deny Christ by your works. First example is vain worship. We just went through that. Teaching the commandments of men. Come December, this is one of the easiest ones to address. Come December, man goes out and cuts a tree, brings it home, picks it in a little stand, pours some water in there so it stays green, and decorates it. Jeremiah 10.5. Actually, Jeremiah 10.3-5. through 5. For the customs of the people are vain. One cuts a tree out of the forest and works of the hands of the workman and with the axe and decorate it with silver and gold, fasten it with nails and hammers that it move not. Notice what he called it. The customs of the people are vain. Here's Christmas in effect years before Jesus was ever born. It is pagan in its origins. Next issue I want to address are false miracles. When I grew up as a child, I remember sitting with my mom and watching television. And there was a man, and he was on television and doing miraculous healings. And we watched him for quite a long time. Quite a long time. And then one day he went totally off the air, and we never knew what happened. Well, subsequently I found out what happened. Uh, it was found out and exposed that his healings were all a hoax. That amazes me how anyone can want the gift of healing so bad and not have it that they're going to go out and perpetrate a hoax. Do they think they can defraud God on that? They're lying to God. They're lying to the people. Do they really think they're doing the work of God? And that organization is very big, very popular locally right in this area today. We can find a reference. I'm not going to turn there. Acts 8, 18 through 23, when Simon saw the apostles giving the Holy Spirit. It's a good uh, parallel to that. Because he says in Timothy 2.5, and I'm not sure if this is 1 Timothy 2 or 2 Timothy because I didn't write it down, but it says in Timothy 2.5, if a man also strive for masteries, yet he is not crowned except he strive lawfully. And there's a whole bunch of scriptures regarding monetary gain. Monetary gain, 2 Peter 2.3. And in there, this is ESV, and we're going to compare it to KJV in a minute. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. We just went through false miracles. That's what's being done here. 
false healings, false words, and at the end of the and at the end of the presentation, send us your donations and your money so we can keep going with this great work. In the King James, it, it says it a little bit different. It says, feigned words make merchandise of you. The word merchandise is, as a peddler goes, travels through the country buying and selling. So they buy, they buy the, they sell you on, on the miracle and they take your money. In 2 Peter 2, 14 and 15, he continues, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. They entice unsteady souls, souls that have built their house on sand, souls that are influenced by every wind of doctrine that comes along. And they have hearts trained in greed. Who's trained in greed today in our society? Wall Street, the big investment corporation. So you see a church going to Wall Street or the big investment corporations to learn how they can utilize those tools so they can make more money. He continues with this theme in 1 Timothy 6.5. In constant friction among the people who are, who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In the KJV, it says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness. And here's how we were supposed to respond to that. From such, withdraw yourself. Notice, he doesn't say you should go out and try to convert them or change their way or go out and debate them, or try to stop them. He says simply, withdraw yourself. Don't follow them. Rings, rings very strongly to the prosperity doctrine. It's very popular. Some scriptures are hard to understand. Others are straightforward and easy. The next ones are very easy to understand. They are very straightforward. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 8, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Continued in verse 9, he said, And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Verse 10, Neither be called, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Very easy to understand. If you practice these, you are denying Christ by your works and you're committing idolatry. The use of these terms are set up by corporate churches. It's not something usually that little independent groups do. Of the truth. And if the elect is to do this, they will probably lose, I shouldn't say probably, they will lose their salvation and they will be in the lake of fire. Matthew 6, 7 says, 
But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. But the big one is in Genesis 2, and I'm just going to go to verse 3 for sake of time. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Notice, he didn't bless the Sabbath day. He blessed the seventh day, seventh day, and sanctified it. Because that in it, he had rested from all his works, which God created and made. The seventh day rest was created and implemented, not when the law was given to ancient Israel. It was created and implemented with creation and stands unchanged to this day. And we'll see how important this is a little later. Now, there's some other doctrines I'm not going to go through, but could be explored. Immortal soul, going to heaven, secret rapture, and Easter, just to name a few. And in my last scripture regarding false religious practices, it's kind of a summary. And this is kind of directed toward, I think, religious leaders more so than lay people. Matthew 7, 22 and 23. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. He doesn't say whether they did or didn't do it. He doesn't even say whether the casting out demons was a hoax whether their mighty works were uh, of what nature. And I want to go then to true teachings. True teachings. John 4.24 God is spirit and to those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The operative word throughout this entire message is truth. And we're going to come to see how important it is a little bit later here. Truth. The steps that one goes through to become sanctified. They hear. They believe. And you can use the parable of the sower. And when the seed goes on good ground, they respond. They don't just casually hear it and say, I'll get around to that tomorrow. No, they respond. They begin to study. They begin to pray. They seek God's truth. And then they get baptized. Strong's word 907 from the derivative, derived from the root 911, which is to make whelmed, which is to say make fully wet. And in Ephesians 4.4 it says there is one baptism. I've heard that, I, well, I know that some Churches sprinkled, some pour, and I heard recently now they have a dry cleaning version of it, which is, which is utterly, you know, that's insane. But after baptism, you have laying on of the hands when one receives the Holy Spirit. And then there's Passover, not communion, Passover. There's foot washing, and Peter, Jesus said to Peter, if you do not let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. Is that a personal statement to Peter? Or is that a directive given to corporate churches and individuals? Because Jesus Christ lives within us, and it says so in Colossians. So when we wash each other's feet, 
it is akin to Jesus washing your feet. I want to talk about sanctification. I'm going through this pretty fast. I thought it would take longer than this. I talk faster up here, I guess. Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's Strong's number 37. Consecrate, make holy. How do you feel about the scriptures saying you are God's favorite and you are holy? Are you embarrassed by that? How can I be holy? And I come up with all my shortcomings. Sometimes I think we may get confused between sanctification and justification. Abraham was righteous because he believed God. It's the same with us. We believe the truth. And we're justified by faith. Demonstrated by works. Continuing in John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare it to you, to, to you, the things that are to come. The spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. So as you and pray and seek that truth, he will lead you into that truth. I think I skipped a couple of my scriptures. I want to go back and pick them up. John 17, 17 says, Sanctify them in the truth. You're, this is Jesus he's in his prayer for the disciples before he gave his sacrifice. And he, in his prayer he says, Sanctify them, praying to God. He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Make them holy in the truth. Consecrate them by the truth, in the truth, and your word is truth. And he continues in verse 19, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be in the truth. Now going back to John 16, 13, where it says he'll guide you into all truth and all the things that are to come. One of the things that is to come that's been spoken about endlessly is the mark of the beast. The mark in the right hand and in the forehead. And there have been all kinds of theories, electronic chips, barcodes, tattoos, you name it, it's been explored. And what if it's a spiritual mark? Right hand works, forehead your thoughts. If you are sanctified in the truth, you will have no dilemma in seeing that and identifying it. The sign of sanctification. What is it? Is there a sign of sanctification? There is a sign. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says, therefore, and I only want to go through verse 11 for one purpose, and that is to establish who Paul is speaking to. Ephesians 2, 11, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, okay? He's talking to the Gentiles 
in the flesh. Continuing in verses 12 and 13. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise. That's as far as I want to go with that, because I want to point out what he said there. If you're separated from Christ, you are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. So the, what's inferred there is when you have Christ, you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. And he says so as we go along here, and it's even bigger than that, Ephesians 2, 19 through 20. So then you are no longer strangers, and this is after you're converted, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So if you're a household of God, you're part of the commonwealth of Israel. If you're a fellow citizen with the saints, you are part of the commonwealth of Israel. And it's interesting because in Galatians 6.16, 6, he says, right on the tail end of that, in the last five words, upon the Israel of God. Let me go back and read the whole thing. As for all of those who walk by this rule, because I'm, I'm coming in on a different subject here, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Well, if there's an Israel of God, then there's also an Israel not of God, isn't there? Paul confirms this in Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all those who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Obviously because they haven't accepted Jesus Christ. Exodus 13, 13 and 14. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall, above all you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, Sanctify you. You're sanctified by the truth of God, by the blood of Christ, and the sign of that is keeping the Sabbath. Next verse. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Whoa, did you catch that? Did you catch that? It's holy for you. Not all mankind... Not everybody on earth, for you. The truth, have the truth. Exodus 16, 26, it continues, same theme. Six days you shall gather in, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath. Seventh day is the Sabbath. In it, there is none. The Sabbath wasn't created at the time when it was given to ancient Israel. It was part of creation. In Genesis 2, 3, so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy so that the people who are holy come to the holy time and commune with him with the truth of God. There is no validity for the teaching that as long as we keep a Sabbath of rest, it does not matter what day we keep. Seventh day was part of creation, not part of the law. 
when the millennium starts with Israel. That is, spiritual Israel has preeminence. When the millennium starts, Israel has preeminence. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives at Jerusalem in the nation of Judah. David, resurrected, rules all of Israel. Each one of the apostles, resurrected, rules one of the tribes of Israel. And the tribe of Judah encompasses Jerusalem and the other tribes surround it. And the saints, resurrected spiritual beings, rule with Christ for a thousand years. We're in a race, just like President Obama. We cannot be re-elected. Hebrews 3.14 For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Our, hold our original confidence. First love? First love? Matthew 10.33 But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. As I said earlier, we can deny Christ in two ways. By words or by works. Scripture and works is Titus 1.16. Continuing in Hebrews 6.4, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. Continuing in verse 6, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified once again, the Son of God, to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Folks, this is serious business. The elect have more to lose than anyone else. The great megachurches, they have lots of resources, colleges, money. They can do a lot of good works on the physical realm. But if you do not have the truth of God, you are not sanctified. That's what it says. And the sign of the sanctification is keeping the Sabbath. What that portends for the mainstream Christianity is staggering. Absolutely staggering. In Isaiah 13, 12, it says, during the day of the Lord, God says, I will make man as rare as fine gold. In the continental United States, there's about 3 million square miles. There's 39 gold mines. 39 gold mines in the United States of America. And that turns out to be one gold mine for every 76,900 square miles. That's a square with 277 miles on each side of it. How would you like to start out on your feet or even in your car and try to find that gold mine in a square 277 miles? To make it a little more real, that would be approximately from Tulsa to Kansas City over to St. Louis and back down to a point midway between uh, Little Rock and Memphis and then on back to Tulsa. Hebrews 10, 23 and 24. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. And as we leave here today, keep in mind Galatians 6.10. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good for all men, for everyone. You see someone that needs help, you don't go over and interrogate them. What's your religion? Oh, <laughs> I don't agree with that. See you around, pal. You know, Curtis gave a message years ago where he took two, two guys were coming together and they started, one guy was going to commit suicide. He's on the edge of the bridge. He's getting ready to jump. And the guy comes over and talks him out of it and then they start talking about religious beliefs. And they get to the point where they disagree on the religious beliefs so the one guy pushes the other guy off the bridge and walks away because he doesn't agree with his beliefs. No, no, we don't do that. As we have opportunity, let us do good for everyone. Paul also said, help your enemies. Do good to your enemies. But the last part of the verse says, and especially to them who are the household of faith. That doesn't mean everybody who believes in Jesus or espouses Christian beliefs. The household of faith is to say the household of religious truth, the household of the sanctification, the household of elect.